literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to the show. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. We're with the Austin American Statesman and Austin 360. And I am very excited to talk about what we're going to do on this episode because it's about a person, but it's also about a home that I have been obsessed with for probably (laughs) 15 years. A home in East Austin on Martin Luther King Junior Boulevard in Maple was designed by an architect who's a very, very special architect and a very, not only to the University of Texas, but also to East Austin in general. As well as to the state, because John S. Chase was the first black licensed architect in Texas and the first black uh, graduate of the uh, UT School of Architecture. Wow. And what year would that have been? 52 is when he graduated. And he moved his business to Houston, which was booming. And that's something we can talk about later. But people who graduated from UT up until the last 25 years or so, and they wanted to stay in Texas, moved on to Dallas or or Houston because that's where the economy was happening. (laughs) And here was... That is so, so true because I was at UT in the 80s and everybody got their degree and left. Right. Well, John Chase did. When he went to Houston, he tried to uh, find an internship at an architecture firm, a white architecture firm, which were the only ones, but uh, no one would hire him. So he petitioned the the state uh, regulatory board and said, you know, can I just take the exam? And without the internship, they said yes. And so he was hired at Texas Southern University. And he built his own firm from the ground up starting in 1954 and later had offices in Austin, Dallas, and Washington, D.C. There's a different part of that, too, There, that you say first licensed black architect in the state of Texas. There were black architects going prior to needing the license, but way back. Yes. Uh, the the law that regulated the use of the term architect goes back that state law to 1937, but there were very prominent black designers, which were architects and just without the license that go back many decades, including a Bastrop born architect named Lewis Edwin Fry. So yeah. And, and another one, uh, a Richard Allen who was formerly enslaved designed the core of the Antioch missionary Baptist church in Houston's Fourth Ward in 1879, and that landmark is still standing. So John S. Chase was actually born in Annapolis, Maryland, and served in World War II for in the Army for a couple of years. And then, uh, as you mentioned, the first African-American to enroll in the UT School of Architecture. The reason I'm so fascinated with him, I mean, not only the churches that still stand today, some of the structures that still stand today, there in particular is a home and there's one a couple doors down from it that's referred to as the Phillips house that you've probably driven by. If you've ever been on MOK and Maple, there's a 
split level off the hillside, very light green home that the design of it is just mind blowing. And if you're a a mid-century modern geek like I am, you, you cannot go by this home without stopping in awe of this place. It has a great wall facing east made of river stones. And I think the, the marble on the uprights is travertine and has this great cantilevered roof that's very uh, geometric, radically geometric. Among the things, and, and the inside is gorgeous too, it, it has a lot of wood paneling, which was uh, popular in high design here in Austin in the 50s. You know, one of the reasons why we have these little modernist masterpieces in town was because following the war, the School of Architecture at UT became, for the first time, quite prominent. And a lot of the people came from California. A lot of the talent came from California and the teachers. And they also uh, practiced in town. So in some areas of town, like Balcones and Barton Hills and several other places, there are these fantastic homes that carry with them that that cool West Coast feel. Uh, we're lucky to have them. And of course, some of them are in East Austin. And that's something that surprises some people because East Austin, you think a lot of time bungalows and uh, cottages and so forth. But especially in this area, right around uh, MLK, just north of MLK, there are more than 50 of these post-war houses which are are being considered. Um, actually, it's pretty well on the way to become a historic district. I was excited to to read about that in, in your, your article you wrote about Mr. Chase, that there is an effort by the city to preserve some of these homes because in West Austin, I have seen so many of these iconic homes just get torn down because they're usually too small and dated and and hard to preserve properly. Among the problems with them is, they're, as you say, they're too small for modern tastes and modern family expectations. They're often very narrow. You know, there are plenty of people who say, bring it on. I love that. <laughs> but the Phillips House, along with the Thompson House and the David Chapel Missionary Baptist Church, which are all almost next to each other, are all part of the Rogers Washington Holy Cross Historical District. The Holy Cross part is because a block to the east was um, the Holy Cross Hospital, which was uh, a beautiful cylindrical building that uh, served the African-American community. I mean, if you were really ill, you know, of course, they were going to take you at BRAC because of Brackenridge, because it was the city hospital. Otherwise, you were not going to get really good care. And so... Holy Cross was built to serve uh, particularly the African-American community. And a lot of times when I'm interviewing people who grew up in East Austin, that's where they were born. You know, I have a, a bit of a confession. I w- have been so obsessed with this home. I honestly looked into purchasing it at one you point. Did. Wow. And this was, it was on the market just over 10 years ago. And it was in the f- mid 400s from what I recall. It's got to be worth three times that now. I'm guessing. It's not so much about the money. This is a, you know, in anybody's book, a beautiful design and also part of the legacy of East Austin that's not always paid attention to. 
you know, John Chase and his wife, Drusy were very much part of the community, and Drusy grew up in, in East Austin and went to uh, old segregated Anderson High and also to what is now Houston Tillotson University. So she had a lot of social connections in East Austin. And one of the things about architecture which fascinates me is people think that, you know, they're these intellectuals in their studios designing all day. But in fact, get the contracts to get the gig you have to be pretty social. And both he and his wife were quite social and entertained leaders in the black church community, in the professional class. For instance, the house two doors to the north, the Thompson house, belonged to Irene Thompson, who was the the late Irene Thompson, who was longtime school secretary at Elsie Anderson. Because she had been the school secretary at the only high school for African-Americans in Austin, she knew everybody and she knew their business. And one time we were sitting in her beautiful John Chase modernist house there in East Austin. And she was telling me all these stories about, you know, people who were caught <laughs> in adultery and all kinds of things. And I said, Irene, should you be telling me this stuff? You know, and, and yes, yes, she should. <laughs> but I profiled her. You know, one of the reasons why I did this story in, in um, when it came out in February 2021 is that there are all kinds of efforts to save his legacy, John Chase's legacy. There's a there were two exhibits, one in Houston and one here, of his buildings. And the uh, UT Press just released a book about his house he built for his family and in Houston, which was pretty revolutionary in itself. And then there's a bi- biography coming out next year. So there's a lot going on with the John Chase legacy and his, his three children are, are very much a part of that. Uh, he passed away in 2012. Uh, his wife, who you obviously spent some time with, just passed away. In- she just passed away in January. And actually I didn't. The quotes from her came from this most recent book. I, I talked to other people including uh, Donna Carter, who is renovating John Chase's 1952 Colored Teachers State Association building, which is also in East Austin. And it will soon house the uh, some of the staff from UT's Division of Diversity and Community Development. It'll be kind of its, its neighborhood anchor there in East Austin. But yeah, I mean, uh, Donna is redoing that structure. To, and she, of course, knew Chase personally and and respected him a great deal. And I just hope, and I'm assuming we'll preserve it with integrity in mind. Oh yeah. And, and the Phillips house is so well respected that it is likely going to, my sources tell me (laughs) that it'll likely be on the national register soon, not just a, a city landmark or state landmark, but an, a national landmark. And, and that was one of my motivations too, when I looked at it was just preservation because I was seeing so many get torn down and the proximity to downtown, you know, on that little kind of hilltop, it's like someone who doesn't get that might just scrape it. We have to talk about the church, the David Chapel, the church across the street, Caddy Corner. It's a gorgeous example of progressive church architecture from the 1950s. And Chase built several churches in Houston that are similar to it. And it's got this escalating, almost like a roof that looks like it's about to take off and these color block windows and this really beautiful 
abstracted modern steeple. The congregation there has stated that they want to move and they already have land over on Springdale, which leaves the question, what will happen to the church? And it's not protected. So they also own the land across the street. It's it's a conundrum. I haven't really talked uh, to the pastor there, who Joseph Parker, about what his intentions are. And I respect that they need to get their money out of the land if they need a bigger church or something. But that building is so beautiful. I hope they find a way to either move it or to preserve it in place and and some clever developer develop around it. You bring up something really interesting, Michael, because, and I think we're going to talk about this a little more in another episode that, that touches on East Austin community is a lot of those attendees of the, the churches like this have, um, have moved out of the community. Absolutely. And, and I, I've talked to various pastors and they say, you know, they'll, once the congregants move to the suburbs, they might come in for Sunday, but they're not going to come in for midweek uh, prayers or, or for Sunday school if it's inconvenient. And that's true with white and Latino churches as well in central Austin is that their congregations are not living in the neighborhood for the most part. But the thing that really has the long-term damage is that it disrupts the community. I and mean, there was a community there for, for decades, for well over 100 years, uh, and in some cases much longer ago than that. But the things that glued the community together, like the churches, they are in danger. And people are working on it, but yeah, it's, it's a, a conundrum. You know, uh, Mr. Chase, much like you, Mr. Barnes, uh, <laughs> has a Houston and University of Texas connection. Mm-hmm. And he's got all oh, the pictures of his home. If you search for the John S. Chase home in Houston in the Oakmere neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's just north of Bray's Bayou, not far from. What's that neighborhood like? Well, it's a modernist neighborhood that was at one time a, a Jewish center. And then that community moved west to Brazewood and Meyerland. The black community in this area, which is very near uh, TSU where he taught, uh, had some pretty progressive ideas, just like Chase. And um, the house itself is on a cul-de-sac. Originally, it was one story when it was built in 1959. And it was later revised in 1968, but it is built around a courtyard. This is what's really interesting and fabulous about it is that originally, if you wanted to move from one private room to another, like from a bedroom to a bathroom, you went through a hallway, which everybody thinks, well, that's normal. But the public rooms, the den, the dining room, the the living room, you access them through the courtyard. In other words, you had to go in and out <laughs> to get to them. This is open sky, although there was there was um, an overhang that protected you from the elements. But when Drusy, his wife, first was on site and saw what it was going to be, she just broke down crying. She didn't understand how it was going to work. You know, how are you going to get things from room to room? And it turns out it was a huge hit. They entertained a lot and people tended to just wander out into the courtyard and be out there. And despite the fact that the interior rooms were air conditioned and spacious. So 
And then he later enclosed that in a revision of the home, correct? He did. In 1969, he rethought it and put a second floor on, encased the former courtyard into a great room, as they say, and then put the children's bedrooms upstairs. That's the house that survives. But you know, here's this wonderful family, three children, very much involved in their community and their churches and clubs and so forth. You know, they... They grew up in this wonderful little masterpiece of a house by John S. Chase. My understanding as well is that uh, living a Baptist lifestyle, they had a secret bar. They did. (laughs) John designed a a high, wall-high bookshelf in the den that was hung on a track and rolled into a wall pocket to expose a, a bar counter. So when, you know, when ministers came over, the bookshelf rolled out and <laughs> covered the bar. Uh, Juicy told one of the writers of this current book, honestly, even when it, w- it wasn't closed, it wasn't closed that much. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's, that's a sweet story. This is something else I, I dug up. You wrote about uh, Mr. Chase in 2013. Mm-hmm. Because the university was doing something to recognize him. And there was a quote in there that just, I think, helps people better understand the context of the times and appreciate him even more. This is a quote from uh, John S. Chase. It said, the drag was completely segregated. He once told an interviewer about life in the 50s. Uh, He said, I couldn't sleep on campus. So I bought a house on East 22nd Street. There was no participation of black athletes in sports programs. We used to go to all the football games, but the stadium was segregated. The last row in the end zone was reserved for blacks. Mm. It changed a lot. Yeah. Wow. All right. Thank you very much. And we do appreciate you uh, giving us your feedback, your comments, your input. Uh, We do get a lot of questions that may even lead to future articles for Michael and segments here on Austin Found Podcast. Cindy wrote to us and said, hi there, I was listening to your Austin Found Podcast and heard you mention an abstract of title from a property here in Austin. I have one from my great-grandfather's farm that he purchased in 1905, and I've been wondering how I could get more information about it. It was approximately 100 acres just south of the Colorado River and was supposedly a dairy farm. She said, I've been thinking about just waiting until the Austin History Center opens back up again. Of course, she's referencing the fact that it's uh, early 2021 and we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I thought maybe you would have some ideas on who I could reach out to. Thanks for all you do for Austin history. I find it fascinating. That's from Cindy Nelson. I think I responded to her by saying that the the great archivists who are working at the History Center will do some of the legwork for you remotely. So if you pose your question to, say, Mike Miller, who's the chief archivist and also manager of the center, they'll find what you're looking for. I love looking myself, so I really, really miss uh, spending time in, in that wonderful building at Guadalupe and Ninth. But yes... You know, the dairy farm thing, uh, I think we went on to talk about how there were lots and lots of dairy farms uh, around Austin. And a lot of people say, well, wow, the land I'm on now is uh, was it used to be a dairy farm. Well, most of the land at one time was a dairy farm because 
you didn't have refrigeration or uh, uh, the kinds of things that that we have now and so your your cows had to be close to your people in order for the milk to get to them fresh <laughs> so the dairy farms are all circled around central austin a little did they know that that uh acreage just south of the river would be worth about a million dollars an acre <laughs> down the road right exactly please uh send us your emails if you have questions if you have comments feedback you can write to us at mbarnes at statesman.com or jhager, H-A-G-E-R, at statesman.com. And thanks for tuning in to Austin Found. Please tell your friends. Happy trails. Happy trails.